Today on the Dolby Creator Talks podcast, we welcome cinematographer Rodrigo Prieto to discuss his incredible work on Killers of the Flower Moon, his fourth collaboration with legendary director Martin Scorsese, for which Rodrigo has gained his fourth Academy Award nomination. This is all part of our continuing coverage of the 2024 Academy Awards. We are once again interviewing as many nominees as we can possibly talk to in the sound and cinematography categories, as well as best original score. So please make sure you're subscribed. Killers of the Flower Moon is nominated for 10 Academy Awards this year, including Rodrigo's Best Cinematography nod. And he is having quite the year because his other movie he had come out this year is the biggest movie of the year, Barbie. Rodrigo has obviously worked with some of the best directors in the business. So I started our conversation by asking him how he got started in cinematography and where that passion came from. Well, yeah, you know, cinematography is a type of job description that not many people understand or even know what it is. And I include myself uh, in my family. There weren't really any people in film in Mexico City. I had one uncle that was a um, playwright and that was it. And he'd done a few documentaries. Uh, so he knew a little bit about it and I was still fascinated. My entry into film was through um, stop motion because uh, my brother and I, we used to do little clay monsters and stuff for haunted houses we used to do in Halloween and in our home in Mexico City. And my father had a Bell and Howell eight millimeter camera. So he showed us that we could do frame by frame and he explained stop motion to us. I, I must have been 10 or 11 at the time. So we filmed our little monsters and projected them actually rear screen projection on sheets in our haunted, haunted houses. And suddenly our little monsters were big and moving. They were alive. That got me hooked forever. Uh, the Because the, I also enjoyed uh, horror movies and and also, by the way, Ray Harryhausen and his his movies, you know, Jason and the Argonauts, that sort of thing. So, uh, but I didn't know that was a career. That was something you could work on. And eventually someone told me there was a thing, you know, film school. And uh, I was, wow, so I can keep on playing. I can keep on doing my little monster movies. And, you know, so that's what led me to film school. And Eventually, I started working with a still photographer as an assistant, Nadine Markova, in Mexico City again. And uh, that's what got me interested in photography. And eventually, both things melded together. And I found that cinematography was the most playful thing of filmmaking. I found it more playful than directing, because in film school, at least, directing was such a big responsibility. It was all very serious and you had to be very cultured and knowledgeable. And I was like, no, I just want to play. So nobody bothered me as a cinematographer. I could do whatever. And, and that's what really led me down that path. And uh, I've loved it ever since. I love that you referenced, you got you, you started in stop motion. I have over my shoulder here, uh, uh, one of the Martians from uh, Tim Burton's Mars Attacks back when the original iteration of that movie was a stop motion film uh, as an as an homage to Ray Harryhausen. Amazing. Yeah. Love that. Oof, that's a good one. So, I mean, Rodrigo, you're nominated this year for Killers of the Flower Moon, but you, you also shot another movie this year, which was the most successful film of the year, Barbie, for director Greta Gerwig. I mean, what an amazing year you've had. Both films are so 
uh, unique and stylized and powerful in their cinematography as a way to tell story through images. But they could not be more diametrically opposed to each other visually, I feel. I, I wonder in all of that, is there a signature Rodrigo Prieto visual style? Or are you a chameleon that just fits whatever the, the needs of a particular story are? I would describe myself more as a chameleon because uh, I just enjoy living different worlds. And, you know, in cinema, we have, or filmmakers, we have the opportunity to kind of live many different lives in, in our careers and in different places, in different countries and, and just different worlds and, and, and exploring the, these worlds that directors are imagining and trying to put myself in their perspective and understand how a director sees their vision or their world or this story is exciting to me. Just, just trying to not necessarily be the, the me that has been already, you know, and what my experience and my ideas and do that again. I find that boring. I prefer to see what other people are seeing and, you know, learn from them and then build on that. And uh, that's a joy to me, you know, and listen to Greta come up with ideas and, and, and suggesting my own and just coming up with, with a, a, a way to say film Barbie land. What, what is Barbie land? It didn't say on the script what it was. We had to figure it out. And uh, also, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, understanding the story, the characters and designing a look for it that would uh, not detract the audience or dis distract, I must say, the audience. I, I don't like to put myself uh, as a cinematographer on top of the story and make, you know, amazing visuals that then that's where the audience goes as opposed to following the characters and, and the emotional moment for each scene, you know. So that, that for me is the emphasis. What, what, what do we want to say, or more accurately, how do we want the audience to feel on every moment or every beat of a story? So that's my guiding light and the script and, and the director, and then, you know, everything just based on that. So that's why it's, it looks different because it, it just automatically has to be because it's a, such a different story. And, and I really thrive in that. I enjoy doing very different type of, of imagery. You've obviously been working with Scorsese for a while now, and you guys have collaborated on multiple films. I'm kind of curious where the process starts. He's such, he's so renowned for being a visually dynamic storyteller. Uh, and, and so where does that process start for you? Obviously, I'm sure you sit down with a script, but tell me about those initial conversations that you have with Scorsese about how the film is going to look and how that, how you start the process of figuring out what your work is going to be. It varies, certainly. And the stories uh, I've worked with, uh, with Scorsese on are very different as well. So uh, every time it is a different way of how we approach uh, figuring out the cinematography and the look of a movie. I remember on The Irishman, it all started a passing conversation where he said, I mean, I'd like this movie to be like a home movie, but I don't want it to be handheld and grainy. Okay, so how do you do a movie that that's not like that? So then that's exciting for me for because then I, I I have to kind of interpret that. In in this case, I think uh, I was just following along as Scorsese was developing the script because it kept changing, or there was a big change as you may know that the original script was more 
focused on the FBI story and, and Tom White and this and that. So uh, that changed and the perspective and point of view of the story changed. So obviously that was the focus of Scorsese. He was uh, dealing with that, trying to understand that. And all along I was just listening and proposing ideas of how we could, for example, uh, differentiate the the worldview or visually differentiate between the white folk, uh, the descendants of the Europeans, and the Osage, for example, if we even wanted to do that. And, and indeed, it is something that Scorsese wanted to, to do. And uh, so I started looking into still photography of the time and color still photography and, uh, you know, found many images uh, uh, that were made with this uh, technique to create color that was called autochrome. So that became the basis of the way we see Ernest and Hale and, and the white people because that color technique is imported from Europe. It's the Lumiere brothers that invented it. So the Osage and their rituals, whenever they're not, uh, let's say, incorporating themselves into the 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 white people's world when they're doing their rituals in their own life say for example molly praying to the sun at dawn that was shot with uh, as naturalistic uh, color as possible so it's a subtle difference but but it's there in the beginning until uh molly's sister's house rita her house blows up and everyone from then on is in uh, in hell, let's say. So the look changes. At that point, uh, we used ENR emulation, which uh, has much more contrasty and harsh and desaturated in color. And then there's another look towards the end of the film that's based on three-strip Technicolor, which is very colorful uh, because the last scene, Dakota, the movie, the last beat in the radio station, happens in the 30s. So the color for that scene is based on, on the color of cinema at the time, three-strip technicolor. So in a way, the movie is is um, uh, how stories are told, you know, because we see the newsreel footage in the beginning that we shot with Scorsese's uh, 1917 Bell and Howell camera, you know, and, and, and then we see the photos of the time. At the, at the end, we see the, the radio show. So it's how do we tell stories? So I thought photography was a good way to express that visually. Well, you teed up so many questions that I have for you in, in your, your answer to that question. But I want to follow up on something. You just talked about the sequence with Molly where she's basically, you know, she has that ritual of praying to the light um, and I, I to the sun. And I, I was so struck. It's almost like the sun, I feel, is another character in the film. And it's such a strong motivator for your lighting. Um, I learned that you, you know, you did a lot of preparation and research on Osage culture and rituals. And, and, and I'm kind of curious, could you talk about your research process and their relationship with the sun and how that affected how you wanted to shoot the sun and, and depict the sun in the film? Immediately, I wanted to buy all the books that I could on, on the Osage culture. And I soon discovered there's not almost any literature and, and, and books of, of studies or of the Osage talking about their own rituals. I mean, there are people that had been there, you know, in the 1900s and, and wrote a little bit about it, but not really much. Uh, so it became a matter of asking them right there. And that was a big advantage of being in Oklahoma in or Osage country. So, uh, that was beautiful because, 
they were very open to helping us in this research. And one of the first things that I remember when we first went uh, to, to start scouting was this dinner where it was a reunion with around 250 Osage. And we sat down with them and chatted and it was a traditional dinner. And, uh, and a lot of the people there stood up and spoke about themselves and their families and their concerns, their worry about what we were going to do, how we were going to depict the Osage. And, and it, it was uh, very interesting. So, uh, I saw how Scorsese behaved. He wasn't giving speeches and saying, we're going to do this and that. He was listening. And I think that opened their hearts to, you know, to help us, to tell us uh, what they had in their minds. And so I took advantage of that and started asking many questions. And I learned that, for example, the villages are built in, in relation to the sun, the orientation of the sun. And there's a main street that, that goes east-west. And, and, you know, there's... Uh, I don't remember all the details right now, but a lot of it I remember was based on the sun and the sun position. And even the rituals, uh, you know, certainly the prayer at dawn, obviously facing the sun. So the sun's important there. Burial happens at, when the sun is at the zenith. So, okay, that's usually a time of day you don't want to shoot as a cinematographer. You want to avoid it. But uh, I thought it was important, you know, to to respect that. And, and so we decided to have the sun in frame. In, the, in those moments. And that's why um, precisely there's a scene of, of Molly's mother's burial and the camera's looking straight up at the sky and the sun's at the zenith and we have the the person who's leading the ceremony with with a, um, uh, a feather and moving it like that. And the sun's flaring the lens as it moves a feather. And, you know, these were things that we didn't tell him, okay, move the feather like that. It just, that's what he was doing. And it just happened to flare like that, you know. But what we did do is uh, we were very careful. Uh, we knew we were going to shoot anamorphic, but anamorphic flares are usually very modern looking. So Dan Sasaki at Panavision designed, or not designed, but he adapted the T-series anamorphic lenses for us with different coatings so that these flares would be warm instead of blue. And also uh, a little bit of detuning, it's called, of the lenses so they wouldn't be as sharp, you know, um, to have more of a period feel. Uh, so there were, you know, things like that, but that was all based on, on what we learned from the Osage. So these are shots that aren't meant to be cool or, you know, just we're honoring, hopefully, their, the way they themselves honor the sun. And also I brought in the sunlight to, to light some of these rituals. For example, in the very beginning of the movie, when the, the ceremony of burying the pipe, uh, I knew that these uh, huts had a hole in the, top of it, you know, for smoke and all that. And I said, well, maybe we can have the sun coming in through that gap and bouncing off of the ground. And that's what lighting the faces of the people. So the presence of the sun I brought into the interiors uh, like that scene. And then there's another scene in a, a big, you know, get together uh, where Hale is present and Ernest and Molly. Again, I brought the sun into that. You know, it was just a way of of representing their worldview. I love the way you talk about shooting Oklahoma. And I, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, you, you talked about the, you know, the, the in, in some ways it was a, it was a gift, but I, I, so I grew up in, in North Texas, not very far away from where you shot the film. And I know that that landscape is very powerful, very austere, uh, but it's also kind of monotonously flat. So I'm curious for you sort of what that, you know, 
What did that open up for you? What were the challenges of actually capturing the landscape and how did you address that? Yeah, Scorsese went to Oklahoma before I did, you know, originally. And also a big part of that trip was to speak with the elders and, and basically get permission to tell this story. And, uh, and he came back and he told me that he was just blown away by the scope of these places, these landscapes. And, you know, he wanted to see how we could capture that if, if it was 3D or how to do that. And, uh, and he said, you know, he jokes that he, you know, he's from Manhattan and, and, uh, tenements and that he, he, you know, for him, what's the sun? Where is the sun? He, you know, he's, and, and, oh, this is grass. What is this green thing? Grass. Anyway, uh, he's, he's funny about that. But uh, I knew that I saw some of the photos of locations. And then, of course, I went, but uh, I knew that. When you're there physically, you feel that size and the sky and all that, but on a two-dimensional screen, you don't capture that, right? So I knew that was a challenge. And certainly the first thing we talked about was anamorphic uh, lenses and the widescreen to be able to incorporate as much as possible in the frame, the horizontal landscape. But uh, I knew that was a challenge. So when we were scouting locations, I tried to find places that had some movement to them and that weren't completely flat to get that sense of depth. And that's cinematography. A big part of it is creating the illusion of depth with lighting, but also with composition. And, and when you're photographing a landscape that's pretty flat, that becomes a little tricky. But um, yeah, we did our best. And, uh, and I think it's effective because it's, uh, besides, it's authentic. And, and it really, I do think, puts you in the place, in the real place. I know that you adopted a hybrid approach to shooting. You you captured, um, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the the majority of the film digitally. I'm sorry, you captured the majority of the film uh, on negative, but you also shot a lot uh, digitally. Can you talk about sort of your experiment process and your prep process and how you derived at what you needed to do one way versus the other and what drove those decisions? Well. Since uh, early on, we knew that the scenes with the Osage, we wanted to capture as naturalistic as possible. Really, film negative still captures the most color depth of, of any format. So that was a given for us. We wanted to shoot on film. Uh, then reading the script, I saw many night exteriors and many scenes that would have to be shot at dusk, which is a time of day that's very short, too short for filming. You know, you can get one shot, maybe two, right? And then it's gone. And uh, uh, that's a big challenge uh, as a cinematographer. And and then some really big uh, scenes, uh, you know, outside at night. And so uh, I decided and we were able to use the best of both worlds where we shot film negative for most of the film where, where it was possible to, you know, either light it or, or day exteriors or day interiors or you know, some of the night scenes are not too huge, so I could light them. But um, the issue with night scenes is that moonlight doesn't just light an area in a, in a big landscape. It lights the whole, the mountains, everything, right? So really, you'd have to shoot day for night. And we actually did that for a couple of moments. But uh, I, I approached the nights in different, in different methods. So whenever it was day for night, it was shot on film. But some of the night scenes we shot dusk for night. So we actually shot when the sun had disappeared and the light 
as you can imagine, changes very quickly until it goes away, right? So uh, the cars, we adapted all the headlights of the cars so that we used LED lights on them, remote control, so we could dim them to match the, the, the way the light was disappearing. But with a digital camera, I was able to shoot a longer, you know, say with film negative, I, perhaps on, once the sun's gone, I could maybe shoot for half an hour max. Uh, it's not magic hour, it's magic 25 minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> but with a digital camera, I was able to extend that to maybe 40, 45 minutes. So those 15 minutes are crucial. And so that was one reason uh, to use digital. And, um, and there are other night scenes that uh, are in Fairfax. And we learned uh, that at, the, at this period of terror, people would put up what they call, called frayed lights, which is light bulbs uh, in front of their houses, you know, just two pieces of wood with a string with bulbs. And um, inspired on that, I created huge rigs of lighting uh, that were basically light bulbs strung in, in frames, different types of frames, a huge, you know, like one of them was about, uh, I think about 30 by 20 feet or, or I think maybe 40 by 20 hung from an industrial crane on top of uh, in Pahuska, the main stretch there for the dance scene at night, for example. Uh, and, you know, and there were other scenes that we used the, these rigs and, and that doesn't emit much light, you know, all these light bulbs. So, uh, digital cameras were very effective for this. We used a Sony Venice camera and we could shoot at 2,500 ISO. Uh, whereas on film, you know, I could perhaps pushing the film go to 800. So I had much more exposure. Uh, and, and so I was able to use the best of both worlds, really. I know it's, uh, it's very important, uh, for Scorsese, obviously to, you know, the performances in the, in the film are uh, amazing. And I, I know that he often will shoot dialogue scenes with multiple cameras in order to, you know, capture, you know, uh, uh, spontaneous performance as much as possible. I know that that's always complicated for a cinematographer. So have you adopted sort of what's your approach to giving him the flexibility he wants and still maintaining an interesting or uh, I guess a good, a good look? Yes, it, it is challenging. And uh, I, the first time I had to deal with that was on 25th hour with Spike Lee many years ago. And, and he, from the very beginning said, all right, we're shooting every dialogue scene with two cameras and, um, and that's it. So I had to, you know, start developing back then that techniques for that. And I remember that one that there was a challenge because Philip Seymour Hoffman's character had glasses and a hat and a baseball cap on. So you can't light from above. Because the hat will block the light. You can't have light from beneath because you'll see the light reflecting on the glasses. So it was tricky. But uh, that's the kind of thing that I find interesting, those challenges. And uh, you figure it out. You know, you, you use the way you understand light and how it behaves and how it it's like pool. Or you hit the ball in a certain way and it'll hit the other ball and then it'll ricochet like this. Well, light the same thing, you know. Uh, where you put the light, how it reflects on a object or face and how that comes to the camera. So, um, yes, I have developed a technique, uh, to, to do that. And it varies, obviously, depending on the location, the moment and all that, but it is tricky because you have to be sure that you, it doesn't look like it's, <laughs> you know, like it's done first of all with two cameras or it doesn't even look like it's done with a camera period. You know, I always try for it to look like you're there and you're witnessing it, but you want to get, light into the actor's eyes and you want to, you know, see their expression, but you want to create depth, you want to create drama, you know, so what would be a backlight for one actor is a front light for the other. So 
figuring out how to do kind of an equal look for both actors actors is a challenge but uh i i've i've adapted it and i even um i directed a movie recently in mexico after uh, killers of the flower moon i directed and shot it and now as a director i'm i know <laughs> we can do that right and 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 you you really use the energy of the actor so i was able to to you know to incorporate these techniques into my own directing but uh yeah it's 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 challenging but it, it's a good challenge well, since you brought that up, now I'm curious. I, I knew that you had just directed your own film, and I'm kind of curious where, you know, I, it's, what an amazing uh, challenge for you to, to both direct and shoot the film yourself. Did you think about having another cinematographer work with you to shoot? And sort of, I'm curious, now that you've directed, you know, is that going to change the way you shoot moving forward? Well, yes, I did work with another cinematographer. I co-shot it with Nico Aguilar. Yes, he's a wonderful, super talented young cinematographer. And he had been shooting second unit for me on some projects. And in fact, on Killers of the Flower Moon, he did some additional photography, like the beautiful moonshot in the movie, the moon behind some branches. He shot that. So uh, Nico came on to the movie I directed as a co-cinematographer. So we both shot it together. Um, well, I don't know if it changes the way I shoot. Um, one thing that I have been learning as a, even shooting, directing short films is that I put on the hat of the director. And even though I'm shooting, the director t matters a little more, more that, you know, so I've done shots when, when I'm directing that perhaps as a cinematographer, I'd suffer a little bit more. I'd be, cr or the cinematographer in me is cringing and, but I'm, we need this shot. <laughs> I know we don't have time to relight it. So it's going to live like that. And the light's going to be a little flatter, but that's what it is. You know, so uh, I, I understand, I think, through directing more the perspective of the director and the actors, really. And, and uh, how what's most important on a set is that the actors are comfortable and are not distracted by the paraphernalia of cinematography. And, uh, and that actually, as a cinematographer, you kind of have to disappear a little bit, you know. They don't need to be aware of you. I know there were some 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 kind of some fun some fun opportunities for you on this film, and uh, tell me a little bit about uh, you know the newsreel footage. I know you shot with a, an a, an antique Bell and Howell camera that actually Scorsese was from his own collection, right? So tell me about uh, getting that camera and shooting those sequences. Yes, I was actually a little bit scared of that, you know, because it's. Uh, you don't know if the camera is going to have any issues that, you know, that's been sitting there for a long time. Actually, uh, although actually he has used it here and there for some small projects. And uh, so what we did is we sent it to Panavision, had them oil the camera and get it ready. And then we, every lens, we looked at the parallax because you can't, it's not a reflex. You, you know, you don't see through the, the, what the lens is seeing. You see through a separate eyepiece. So we had to learn parallax, learn how to do it and shoot it and test it and see, oh, no, we, we're, we're not framing it, you know. So it was a process for us to learn. And then the, the rhythm of the, of the cranking of the camera also was a thing that the, what we did is that not, the operator wasn't doing it. It was Trevor Loomis, the camera assistant. So he learned this song. I don't remember which one it is, but he'd be there cranking it. And, uh, it was fun. And, and, and what you see in the film, the aperture is the actual aperture of the camera. So that's why you see the edges are a little scraggly and, you know, it's, it's not a visual effect or anything. It's the actual aperture of the camera. And most of those in the end were done by, uh, second unit. That was Ellen Curris directed that second unit and, uh, Darren Liu shot it. 
So uh, I did a few of them, but, but she did most of them and they're very realistic. I mean, you look at the film, they look exactly. In fact, there are a couple of, of clips that are actual home movies that the Osage did, like the airplane landing. That one we did. That one's actual, but it matches pretty good with what we did. So if I can beg your indulgence, uh, there are, there are a few scenes that kind of jumped out at me when I watched the movie again. And I would just love for you to, you know, just to, to quickly kind of ask you about them. And you can tell me sort of about your approach to lighting them and the composition and, and how you accomplished. Uh, the look of some of these sequences. Uh, the first one that I wanted to ask you about is that very first dinner scene uh, in Molly's house between Molly and Ernest, and then the storm that comes through. I was, I just, that was such a remarkably beautiful and still scene of stillness for me that uh, I, I'd love to hear you talk about you, you know, your experience of lighting and shooting that scene. One thing you, you always have to think of as a cinematographer is a practical matters, you know, and how to approach a scene where it'll have the atmosphere and the, the, the look you're going for, but at the same time that the day is achievable and the other days in the same location. So you're thinking of all these things. Uh, so this place was built by Jack Fisk. It's Molly and her mother's house. And, and he built it on location on this piece of land that has a river on it and has a hill across the river where he built some you know, structures that look like gray horse, which is where they're all from. Amazing. And, and we were able to, to locate the house and orient it for the sunset, which we did sunset for sunrise. So the moments that are supposed to be sunrise are actually sunset things of this sort. So it, it was really wonderful, but the house itself, including the second floor, we didn't shoot any soundstage. It was right there on location. So it was really like shooting in an actual house, which it was, but, um, I had to make sure that the lighting rigged into this place could work for the daytime scenes and the nighttime scenes. An advantage of LED lighting is that now you can have the same unit create warm light like tungsten uh, and then the same unit change it to, for daylight. So um, I had a, throughout the dining room and living room a, a series of of very low profile panels with LED little lights on them through diffusion that I was able to do a top light for the table that would match the lamp that was on top of it and and dim it way down so that it would again match the oil lamps and you know the very low level tungsten light and Jack Fisk made the the wood which is accurate to the period uh, pretty dark so it it becomes a very intimate moment with this warm chiaroscuro you know of lighting that that really falls off and and uh, again two cameras for the dialogue and the thing about this scene is that it happens at night, but many of these scenes we should shoot during the daytime. So we have to create little tents around each window with maybe a small unit of light that creates sort of a moonlight effect. But then Scorsese heard of this story of some, like two days before we shot the scene, someone talked about the, this, this idea of, of a storm and that he was in the house of an Osage and the storm happened and exactly what happens on the scene. So he wanted to incorporate it. So suddenly it's like, Rodrigo, you have to, you know, make it possible for rain to happen during this scene at night, but you're shooting during the daytime. Okay. So we had to immediately pivot and make these tents much bigger and put lighting for rain and make it possible for the rain rig to fit, you know, challenges like that. So it seems the scene is very still because that's what it is about, but to make it that way is not still at all. Well, I think one of the things I love about that story is, you know, you, you, you prepare so meticulously. Scorsese obviously has a very clear idea of what he wants the thing to look like visually 
And then an idea comes up and you pivot and you go with it. You have to just maintain flexibility on the day. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and many moments like that happened and happened in his movies, but have happened on, on Killers of Flower Moon. And, uh, and when an actor suggests something, he will usually go for it. So we have to be ready to precisely pivot. One of my favorite moments like that is, uh, the scene right after Ernest goes to, to, to look at the, the aftermath of the explosion of Bill and Rita's house. And, and, uh, he sees this and, you know, he now is realizing the, the, the scope of the horror, what they're doing. And he comes back home. He's wrought with guilt. Scorsese had designed a shot, an idea that was just coming in through the doorway, through the porch and finding the family in the living room, say, for example. And so it was just a point of view of Ernest. And then she would say, so what happened? Right. So he, we're, we, I prepared that. It was lit for that. And then. On the same night we were shooting, he asked, uh, he asked Molly, right? And, and Ernest is walking in and he, he tells her, so where, where do you think you would be at this moment? And, and I'm thinking, oh, she's going to say the dining room or, you know, or the living room. And they, it's, it's already, it's lit for, she says, well, I would go to the basement. Basement? What basement? And we didn't even know if there was a basement in this location. And suddenly, okay, locations, look for a basement. And, we went through the kitchen, opened the door. Oh, there's a basement there. So now I had to prepare a shot that went through the house, through the into the kitchen, and through the door to the basement, right? Um, immediately, because we're shooting that night, you know. So I need a light source. Go get some, you know, a, a, an oil lamp for the basement, you know, that sort of thing. And and the end result is so much more powerful, really. You know, and the, the the camera going through this living room and hearing a baby crying. The uh, young young child crying, which was real. That's a sound that was happening at the moment, and and the camera goes and opens and sees her down there in the depth. It's so much more symbolic and powerful. And her looking at him up there and and the, and screaming in pain. One of my favorite moments in the movie, and it all came from Scorsese listening to to his actors. One of my favorite uh, uh, scenes visually in the film is is um, when uh, uh, Robert De Niro's character Hale sets fire to his own ranch in order to collect some insurance money. Uh, and obviously, you know, this is a trope of, of these films, you know, the, 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 the prairie fire. Uh, can you talk about, but you achieved a very interesting distinctive look uh, for that. Can you talk about that? One influence for that was Days of Heaven, Nestor Almendros in the epic fire scene that wasn't lit. It was just the fire. And, and I remember so strongly these images of the silhouettes of the people trying to put out the fires. So I thought, okay, we'll do something like that. So we set it up where we see the, a wide shot of the house and, you know, all these, uh, pipes of, with, with gas pipes that are hidden underneath the ground. And we have to super design that. And where's the fire going to be? Uh, so I asked the special effects people to put, um, some fires deep in the background beyond the house precisely to create silhouettes of, of people who are, you know, milling about. And then, you know, there were other fires, but that for me was a, what would create the silhouettes. And then we added in front of the lenses of the cameras. We shot it with two or three cameras. One was a wide shot. We added flame bars, you know, just a bar with small flames to create a little bit of distortion so that the image wouldn't, would have these ripples of, of heat, the distortion of heat. Uh, but what happened was that the, it doubled up because we have these small flame bars close to the lens, but then maybe 50 feet away with a long lens, you know, long focal length, telephoto. Uh, the, the, the big fire that was 
in the foreground, but out of shot of the tight camera. It was set up for the big wide shot. Created a a, a layer of of heat waves that was much more powerful and stronger. And it looks like the image is sort of, you know, being distorted kind of in a liquid way, but that's all it is, is a distortion of the heat. And what we discovered as we were shooting was that if we pull the focus to the distortion, as opposed to trying to focus on the, on the silhouettes in the background, that's where it really became surreal. And so that's what we did, but we really, we really discovered it right there in the moment. We didn't even test it be beforehand. And it was, uh, stunning to see as we were shooting it was mesmerizing so uh, and and scorsese had already prepared unbeknownst to me some choreography in the background so that's why the people move in very strange ways back there that's actually very designed i was like what's going on why are they doing these weird things and that's why it was this choreography that he had planned one of the things i loved about that is you know uh, uh, you know you know obviously um Molly is very sick at that point. Uh, and we go back to her house and she's in bed and she's sort of delirious, but we see the flames in the windows there. It doesn't logically make any sense because their house is miles away from the Hale Ranch, but it's just so magical. You kind of just got away with it. I, I found that fascinating. Yeah, that's one of those things uh, that Scorsese, you know, pushes the medium to a certain extent. You, you know, he he'll allow himself a certain surrealism and and especially in a moment in the story where we're so involved and, and Ernest is now kind of losing his mind. And, and Molly also, certainly she for the drugs, she's the sickness and the drugs that she's getting and Ernest for his guilt. So it, it, it's not out of place to be surreal then. And I remember Scorsese saying, could we have some uh, projection onto the walls of fire light and I was, well, this room has all these sh shears on them, you know, the shades actually that go down to the bottom. So it would be a little too weird for the project, the, the fire to be projected on the wall because it can't go through, you know. Um, so I proposed the idea of projecting the, the firelight onto the, the screens themselves. And uh, so I came up with a lighting effect that was basically mylar and, and, and 10Ks through different colored gels. Uh, bounced off Myler that was being shaken by, you know, some grips, and and that's what's projecting off on the, on on the windows. So it's it's a little bit theatrical and totally unrealistic, but uh, I he he liked it, and 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 so we went with that. It's supposed to be strange, not not realistic. Final question uh, that I have for you. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I got the experience. Uh, I got to see Killers of the Flower Moon in a Dolby Cinema in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. And, and it was such an amazing experience. The, the, just the contrast, the, the richness of the blacks, the detail that was, that was in that photography and some of those, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the scene where Ernest meets Hale's lawyer and all of his allies at the end. It's just sort of like, almost like a godfather kind of, of scene and it's inkiness in the blacks. Um, what's your, what's your participation in the grading process? Tell me about kind of your involvement in, in that final step. For me, it's crucial. It's really the, the cinematography is uh, built in the set, certainly on, on, on set, but, but uh, it's like editing in a way or sound mixing. You know, you're really taking all these ingredients that you've captured and you found in the field a little berry that mm, is delicious, but that berry is nothing until you mix it with this and that, and then the color comes out. And, for me, that that's a process, a process of color grading, and indeed, Dolby Vision to me is a premium 
cinematic experience. Not IMAX or any of that, which is also pretty great because it's big, but and big and spectacular, but Dolby Vision is so perfect. I mean, just in terms of the, like you say, the rich blacks and the highlights with detail, and it's uh, closer to to my experience of life. You know, where where you know you 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 can see something very bright, but you still see it. But it is bright, but you see it, and and also the shadows. You have detail in the shadows, but there's also black. It's perfect. I love Dolby Vision, but it's uh, it's sometimes challenging to you know the color grading you've done in P3, let's say, to take it uh, to to Dolby Vision. You discover things that oh, okay, you can actually see that piece of equipment out the window. So now you have to deal with that, you know, or uh, or some some things that you didn't even know were a little bit milky because you know regular uh, digital projection is uh, the blacks are lifted so. Oh, the scene is actually milky. We have to bring those blacks down, you know. So uh, I don't know. It's a process that I enjoy enormously. C color grading is one of my favorite parts of uh, cinematography. I work with Ivan Lucas, who um, he's an amazing color grader that I've uh, worked with for many years since uh, the movie Alexander with Oliver Stone. Uh, so uh, he also enjoys Dolby Vision, and Thelma was pretty involved too. She, she, in all of Scorsese's movies, you know, is part of the color grading. Uh, experience and uh so so we share that and and it's challenging for, for me sometimes because she becomes so used to what she's son seen for months in the edit in her monitors and all that and of course is it himself as well right and i have an idea of what i wanted to do and she has an idea of what they've been what they've been seeing you know so it's sometimes a bit of a challenge but we always get to a good point together people get used to what they've seen yeah and sometimes it's a little bit of shock when you bring in a new element Rod Rodrigo, this has been such a fun conversation. I love this movie. Your cinematography was fantastic. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Glenn. I appreciate it enormously. Many thanks to Rodrigo for joining us on the podcast today and talking about the amazing work on Killers of the Flower Moon. Best of luck to him on March 10th at the 96th Academy Awards, which are going to be coming to you live from the Dolby Theater in Hollywood. Apple TV Plus is where you can currently watch Killers of the Flower Moon in glorious Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. We'll have a link, as always, in our show notes. And speaking of awards, as I mentioned up top, this episode is part of our continuing coverage of the Academy Awards. If you'd like to hear more conversations with fellow Oscar nominees in this category and more, be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. Many of these awards are tough to pick and predict, and we will continue to offer these in-depth conversations filled with unique insights into the work of each of these nominated films, which may make it just a little bit easier for you to fill out your Oscar ballot, whether you're an Academy voter or you simply want to do better in your annual office pool for the Oscars. And if you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. 
Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Karen Marroquin. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>